Welcome to Reveal, the Revenue Intelligence Podcast powered by Gong. We're your hosts, Devin Reed. And I'm Sheena Badani. Revenue intelligence is a new way of operating based on customer reality instead of opinions, making data-driven decisions based on facts instead of opinions or guesswork. And it's made up of three success pillars, people intelligence, deal intelligence, and market intelligence. You know, the things all revenue teams need and care about. Every week, we interview senior revenue professionals and share their stories and insights on how they leverage revenue intelligence to drive success and win their market. You'll hear how modern go-to-market teams win as a team, close revenue with critical deal insight, and execute their strategic initiatives, plus all the challenges that come along with it. So, Sheena, you were on vacation last week. Well, mm-hmm. well earned, well deserved. But I know that you weren't completely on vacation because we had really big news come out last week. Do you want to share it with the folks? Yeah, it was a really exciting week. We are thrilled to announce our Series D. We raised two hundred million dollars at a two point two billion dollar valuation. Um, we are, you know, are thrilled about this, uh, you know, milestone. But more importantly, it's really just setting us up for what's next. It's enabling us to continue to add value to our customers, to help get revenue intelligence out to more and more people. Um, and you know, really just hone in more on innovation. So it's, it's really exciting. If you are uh, looking for a new gig, Gong is hiring across the board. <laughs> so please check it out, <laughs> yeah. even on our team, if you want to come work with Devin and I. Both of us are hiring, shameless plug. Both of us have uh, an opening on our team. Uh, but true. yeah, it was huge news and you know, really validating, uh, like you said, you know, for, for the company, for the space, you know, revenue intelligence that we're creating. Um, and for those who enjoy the podcast, I have put in a petition. We need a thousand signatures and our CFO will give us a million of that 200 million, uh, just for a reveal. <laughs> so we can continue to, uh, <laughs> to, to promote the podcast. <laughs> Kidding. Of course. Uh, it was funny though. I think I literally took seven minutes for me to get my first prospecting email. Once the, uh, the funding news went out, I had a, a, the, the first prospect emails in my inbox. So I had to give it, give that guy credit. Seven minutes yeah. flat was, was great timing. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> well, this week, aside from the big news, is we are hanging out with Paul Butterfield. Now, Paul Butterfield is a is probably the most experienced sales enablement person I've come into contact with. He's got over a decade of experience. But before we get into the interview, Sheena, I'm curious, what does sales enablement mean to you or maybe meant to you in your career thus far? So I've actually been spending a good amount of time with our sales enablement team, um, you know, heading up our PMM team. I work very closely to make sure that our our sales team has what they need to be effective. Um, I really see sales enablement as um, being that support to ensure that sales has the materials, the messaging, um, the tools that they have to be their best selves, right? Mm-hmm. To focus on the customer and the, and the skills and those assets are being provided to them uh, from sales enablement. It's a tough job, right? It's never, yeah. it's, it's never, it's never done. You, you get something out and you, know, you, you train the team on a play on a specific pitch and you have to continuously evaluate what's going on in the market. How should we be staying on top of uh, our, our space um, and other players that are out there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And it's been a little bit of those things at some companies. It's been all those things at some companies I've been at. The, the definition kind of changes, right? Company to company in terms of what they focus on. 
Um, and I think it can be a challenging role, not just because it continues, like you said, it's, an, it's something that's an, it's an iterative process, right? It continues to, to happen. But I, I like what Paul said in terms of measuring it. He said, you know, let me be clear, only sales gener- generates revenue. And so his, his whole focus was like, look, we're just here, like you said, Chino, to enable that process and to make it as smooth as possible. And in sales, I would say usually they, when it comes to sales enablement, they're usually measuring like time to ramp or oftentimes time to first deal. And what was cool is Paul said that, you know, that, that's good and all, and that's important. But the other things to really look for are time to full pipeline and time to second deal to make sure you didn't get a bluebird or a fluke. So I thought that was really interesting. <laughs> he had a one-liner, which I'll always remember, which was training is for animals. Enablement is for people. Yeah. So that's another <laughs> you know, good way to think about it that, you know, humans, we have these innate skills and sales enablement is there to help kind of bring out what you already have in the best way possible. Yeah. Yeah. I love that line too. It hit my ear too. Uh, when he said it, I was not expecting mm-hmm. that, but whether you're listening to, you know, improve your sales enablement, uh, you know, team, or if you're looking to build it from scratch, this interview with Paul is going to get you exactly where you need to be. So let's go hang out with Paul. All right, Paul, we are very excited to have you on the show today. Welcome to reveal. Thanks, Gina. And, you know, we're going to have a really great conversation today about sales enablement. But to kick things off, uh, you know, I see that you're a podcast pro and that you recently started hosting the Sales Enablement Society's podcast, which is actually called Stories from the Trenches. Can you tell us a little about that experience and what motivated you to get into the world of podcasts? Sure. I, well, let's start with the podcast itself. So that the podcast as a, as a communication arm of the sales enablement society has been around for probably a year and a half before I took, uh, took over as host. And the idea is just what the title says. It's to meet with sales enablement practitioners, small companies, large companies globally, as much as possible and find a variety of things that the sales enablement community are dealing with in general. And these are folks that we look for that have succeeded. They figured out maybe a new way to attack it, or they've just got a lot of history of success in tackling that problem or issue. And then we just unpack that on each episode. So the one that just released um, today is with um, a a woman who is one of the leading experts uh, or at the front of thinking about how women in sales need different enablement than men in some cases, and how can we best enable them to be in that top 1% club? And so those are, that's just an example of the kinds of things that we, we explore. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never even, uh, never thought of that concept, but that I had neither that, you know, that's one of the fun things about this is I learn, right. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and I, I meet a lot of really interesting people and, um, yeah, so that's, you know, why, you know, why do I do it? Well, number one, I, I am a performer. Um, I'm a musician, so I'll always take a stage. Let's be honest. But um, the fact that I do get to to network and and meet with just fascinating people from across our industry um, and learn from them. Well, I'm going to take a quick right turn before we get back into sales enablement because as I was you know brushing up on who Paul Butterfield is, I couldn't help but notice that you're a volunteer barbecue chef at Operation Barbecue Relief. So mm-hmm. I have to know what's their mission and, you know, why did you join? It's about, they five, five, six years old now. I can't remember about that. But the original, uh, the mission rather is when there is a disaster, hurricane, tornado, doesn't matter, earthquake, doesn't matter what it is. 
that people who are, uh, you know, really uh, experienced, they don't have to be a competitor or anything, but experienced barbecue chefs know how to cook for a large group, all that sort of thing, have their own gear. The call goes out and anyone within the region where that emergency happened that can just converges as quickly as possible and they cook for the people impacted by that emergency, you know, for, for days or longer, depending on, on what's needed. And so it's, it's a volunteer organization, uh, you know, completely reliant on donations, um, you know, for supplies and that sort of thing, as well as time. And I love it because uh, you don't get to do it all the time. Really, like I say, it's regionally based. And maybe I'm lucky. I don't live in a region that has you know, a lot of natural disasters. I, I grew up in Florida, so I know what that can feel like. But I, I just love the idea of going in and, and, and you know, barbecue is comfort food, right? I can't think of much something much better to, to you know, let folks have that, that help them get through a tough time. I'll agree. There's nothing more uh, comforting than a slab of ribs and some mac and cheese, at least if you uh, ask me. So I have to ask, what's your specialty? What is, you know, what's your dish of choice? I would say it's my char siu pork belly. So, you know, you go to the Chinese buffet and they got those bright red shiny ribs. Mm -hmm. I do mine from scratch. By the way, I don't put the red food coloring in it. It's, uh, you know, it's a restaurant thing. But it's, it's that, you know, the hoisin sauce and the oyster sauce and the ginger and the lime. Um, and then make the sauce from scratch and then um, do a whole pork belly rather than ribs that way. That people generally love it. That sounds delicious. And hopefully you have a vegetarian option of that as well <laughs> for folks like me. <laughs> I do. I know. I, def- I definitely do. Uh, you won't see it in the competitions, but yeah. Well, that sounds great. Thanks for volunteering your time for such an amazing uh, initiative. So shifting back, getting back on track to, uh, you know, your professional focus, could you tell us a little bit more about your current role and your team at Instructure and maybe just give us a couple lines on what Instructure does as a company as well? Sure. Instructure is best known as the, well, I'll say we are are the leading market share wise um, platform for education. If I am a K-12 school district or a college or university, and I need to offer my students a remote or online or blended option, we have an entire suite of tools that let us do that. Um, You know, all of the Ivies are a customer, and and I could name some others, but it's, it's, it's really what we're known for. Uh, and very good at doing. And of course, in the last few months, you know, it's, it's, it's been nice to work at a place that actually was able to respond and make a difference as these schools had to rush ones that had never really looked at a serious online option. They had to figure out how to do it. The, um, the other piece of our business is called bridge, which is a um, employee performance and, and management and LMS kind of all rolled in one. Uh, and I joined in October. Our chief revenue officer recruited me. I've worked for him two other places. And uh, one of those guys, I'm always going to respond when he texts me. And the mission was to come in and create a sales enablement strategy. As he described it to me, there was a sales enablement function. But now we've got a full team and, and uh, a strategy that we're following. Looking at your Looking background, at- Paul, you've been in direct sales account management, channel sales, sales leadership, and now you're head of sales enablement. Uh, and, and I think you jumped in there about eight years ago. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, like what prompted you to move from sales to sales enablement? Or, and are there any, you know, kind of like characteristics 
or skills that helped you transfer transfer over? Yeah, absolutely. So the story is, is, is let me back up. When I first got my first sales leadership role, um, and at the time it was leading an HP team, that I figured out very quickly, I had just moved from the revenue column into the debit column. And I needed to figure out how to add the most value that I could. And, and there, were, there, were, there were three things that I focused on. And the first was hire smart, fire fast, right? But the second one is when you've got that hire in place, it is on you as a sales leader and to whatever support you can get from your company, but it's you to set that person up for success every way you possibly can. And then number three is once they're set up for success, run interference and keep the red tape and the BS out of their path when they're trying to close deals. But when I was in contact, I originally joined there um, as a sales director, uh, mid-market North America. And I think I was about a year and a half into that. And we, we changed CROs, uh, excuse me, EVP of sales. And I was in one of my. I was in a one-on-one with the the new one. Um, he'd only been there six weeks. I don't think uh, all of us are still getting to know him. And he he went over to his board. This would have been Q three of 12, 2012. And he went over to his whiteboard and he wrote um, sales enablement on the board. Now, I never. T- I didn't tell him this till much later. I had to go Google that. I just kind of nodded and smiled because I, I had not heard that term. And. And then he started to talk about what he'd seen me do to develop my team, i.e. when I got there, I was shocked to find out none of my AEs were, were able to demo our product. So I worked with the VP of sales engineering. We developed the first demo certification. My team went through it, and then the company decided everybody should go through it. Right. So s- some things like that. He knew about my long affiliation and success uh, with, with a sales methodology. Uh, that I originally learned um, in, in that you mentioned the channel I was leading a Microsoft channel sales group at the time. And, and he wanted that he was familiar with that methodology. He used it at another company and he wanted that rolled out and customized and all of that. So his challenge to me was, these are the things I want. I'm getting ready to triple the sales team over 18 months. And the first new class of enterprise reps is coming through in December. This was like I say, September, October timeframe, October. And he said, go home for the weekend Think about the challenge and come back Monday and let me know if you accept it. And if so, what's your 30, 60, 90? So there we go. It was simply that he wanted me to take what I had been doing for my teams and figure out how to scale it. And that's how I got into sales enablement. When you ask about, you know, the skills that came over, I, I, I won't say that it's essential for someone in sales enablement to have been in sales to be successful. I can only speak for myself. And carrying a bag and, 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 and a number is an experience that's pretty unique. I think you guys would agree in the corporate world. And having done it for so long and having led teams that were doing it for so long, and um, I attribute whatever success I've had in sales and name it to a large part to those years of experience. Because I don't know how, I'm not a trainer. I am not a L&D person. I'm not an instructional designer. Never claimed to be any of those things. I've had to learn some of the stuff, but I'm a sales guy at heart. And I only know how to think about sales enablement activities in terms of how it's going to impact the revenue. Uh, that's really interesting, especially when you were in that first sales enablement role, you really got to define what sales enablement meant for your company and for your team. You, you really defined what the philosophy and the strategy was going to be. Yes. I'd love to hear like, what a little bit more about what that philosophy is and what's stuck with you since those early days um, into this function. 
It's a great question. I did a lot of deep diving into what the sales enablement world, you know, and, and, and of course it's evolved a lot since then. But at the time I, I discovered very early on folks like um, uh, Roderick Jefferson, who has been someone I've learned from so much over the years. One of the things that I, I, I picked up early in developing my philosophy was something he said, someone accredited that was you train animals, but you enable humans. And so to the degree possible, you will never hear me talk about anything that my team and I do as sales training because I just, I just think that's such a great, solid concept. Um, then the next thing that I figured out was uh, that, well, we had to focus, right? There's so many things we could do. I knew we had a team of six new enterprise reps targeted to start the first week of December. Better get a boot camp in place. And I went out and I just gra- gathered my peers and the other sales leaders I'd worked with and, and, and said, guys, Give me your wish list, right? And and I really just, I I just evolved as I learned. It was really just doing a lot of reading and a lot of asking and a lot of listening. So so out of that philosophy developed for me, um, I'll give you an example. My my team's mission statement at Vonage, and it's not that much different, uh, you know, it's a variation of it here. This is how I look at stuff. Uh, You know, that our role, our mission is to enable sales teams, support teams, and channel partners with the methodology, process, knowledge, skills, and tools to differentiate by how we sell and win. And I really want to focus on that last part. Um, It's not a product-centric world. It's a customer-centric world, and it is an experience economy. And no matter how great your product is, if sales teams are relying on that to do the selling for them, they're not going to win as often as as they should. People want an exceptional experience. And so at a high level, that's what my team is enabling our team to do, our sales team to do. So Paul, tell us a little bit more about this customer-centric selling approach. It was on our list of questions and you just mentioned it. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how that's played a role in your sales enablement philosophy? Absolutely. As I said, it's a methodology I was introduced to. In fact, it launched in the early 2000s. I think it was the summer of 2002 that Microsoft brought a whole bunch of us up to Seattle and we were in the W downtown and, and took us through, we went through the three and a half day workshop with one of the, one of the co-founders. And in fact, McMillan was still in the editing stages of the book at the time. So, so this is something that's been pretty deeply ingrained in me. And I don't want to make this too much a commercial for the methodology, but my personal experience first was it beat the others. And I'd been through some world-class HP had brought in some amazing folks to do training and that sort of thing. But the problem always was that, you'd get all pumped up, you'd go back to work Monday morning, and you had to sit there and figure out how do I actually apply this? And most of the time, that's not easy. And the end of the quarter is coming. And so most people just default to what they know, because they got, like I say, they're chasing a number. This methodology actually had persona-based, and this was stuff the salesperson didn't create, but persona-based uh, discovery playbooks, um, tools for actually tracking opportunity, velocity, and, and control. Yet at the same time, you're mapping to the customer's buying process and their journey without giving up control. It, it's it's kind of it, it's kind of cool because it's a greater experience, better experience for the customer, but you forecast more accurately and your stress level goes down and you win more often. And so when I later joined into it. It's one of the things that when I was recruited there that they noticed on my, um, my LinkedIn profile probably and, and talked to me about 
So we, we did it there. That was a direct sales team. And when I got hired and in contact, um, there was, we were using another, um, another methodology, uh, really more of a, 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 an approach uh, at the time. And then, as I said, when, when that new um, uh, EVP joined, he found out I had, and, then, and over the time, I was lucky to be mentored by one of the co-founders of, of CCS. And so I had a very strong relationship there and access to some great knowledge. And, and so that was part of why Bill asked me to go into sales enablement. You know, he said, look, I know you know how to use it as a sales leader, but go, um, I want you to go figure out how to customize it and then lead an implementation. So it's really been ingrained for so long into how I think about sales. So when I look at my sales enablement, to come back to your, you know, your question, if you could go back and listen to the mission statement that I read you, that's where that's coming from is being customer centric, aligning to the buyer's journey without giving up control and offering an exceptional experience. When you, you say aligning to the buyer's journey, I think mm-hmm. a, lot a lot of people either think they do it or maybe they actually do it. Right. But I think it's something that like sales teams are consistently trying to get towards. I hope so. What are some of those like, okay, once you start aligning to the aligning to the buyer's journey, you should stop doing X and kind of start doing Y. Basically what I'm getting to are there's like some commonalities in terms of like, Hey, when we start to apply customer centric selling to teams, there's a couple of these common things that we need to start prying away from or start doing. Sure. Sure. The first thing I'd say, and, and I think I agree with you, that teams, uh, sales organizations have started trying harder to work with the customer um, and, and think about their point of view. You know, most of the time I was growing up in sales, we talked about how, how are we aligning our deals to our sales methodology or our sales process and sales force. And guess what? Customer could care less you know, about that. That's not their problem. Right. And so, so that's the first thing. If you're not already thinking that outside in way, then you need to, you need to start doing that. You need to have a, um, between sales and marketing, have a very strong understanding of who your buyer personas are and what are at least three significant challenges, business outcomes, pain points, whatever you choose to call it, that they deal with consistently enough that you can prepare that persona-based messaging for your SDRs and your sales teams to take in because that allows them to start connecting right away with the individuals that they're talking to. Um, one, I think you guys would agree, you have a very narrow window as an SDR or a salesperson to establish yourself as someone who's authentic, who's actually competent and worth spending time with and can maybe enable them to do something that they haven't been able to figure out for themselves. That, that's very true. I think that collaboration um, with, with marketing and, and developing those personas is, is super critical. Mm-hmm. Are there other key departments that are uh, essential for sales enablement to work closely with in addition to marketing or product marketing? Absolutely. One of the things I figured out very quickly was that it is a sales enablement is definitely a team sport. And you've got to have a, a strong triad of sales enablement, product marketing, and RevOps, and ideally a fourth leg with the product team themselves. Without any one of those, the program's not going to be as successful as it, as it should be. I found a great article on HBR published in July of this year titled, How to Keep Closing B2B Deals During the Pandemic. So I wanted to share a couple stats from it for today's data breakout. To drive the importance of sales enablement in today's selling landscape, 
and the urgency behind it, here are some of the hurdles worth prioritizing when it comes to preparing your sellers. First, and this one might sound obvious, but ramp up your prospecting efforts. Marketing teams should continue to test low cost channels like email, specifically because email open rates have increased 41% according to world data, but only for companies acknowledging their customer situations. However, make sure you avoid the doom and gloom tone. Next, pitch like you're selling to the CFO. 41% of CEOs say they expect a large negative impact to their business during the pandemic, which creates scrutiny over every single purchase. That means CFOs are involved more than ever and are looking for hard ROI before approving purchases. Make sure your reps are well-equipped to clearly convey how your offering will help budget holders reduce costs and save money. And in today's show notes, you can download our CFO letter template. It's a fill-in-the-blanks template that you can fill out with your champion, and it helps present your solution in a way that resonates with budget holders, specifically looking for that hard ROI. You know, what I'm actually really curious to hear from you, you're such an experienced sales enablement leader, is getting a little bit tactical. What does your onboarding program look like for reps? And to whatever degree you can give some interesting nuggets or something different that you've uh, you know, done over the years as you've learned to create a world-class training program for, for new reps, uh, would love to hear about that. If I, if this were visual, I would, I would show you the sales name framework that, that I built and have tweaked over the years, but it's, it's, you know, it's served me well now at a couple of different companies. When I think about onboarding, we use that term interchangeably a lot of times with what I also consider ramping onboarding in my view is that first week typically would have been at the corporate office in a sales Academy environment I'm still an advocate of that. And fortunately, the executives that I've worked for agreed and we got the travel budget. Vonage, every new sales or SDR and CS employee globally would come into New Jersey for that week. And so part of it is knowledge transfer, but also it's letting these folks feel the corporate bear hug, feel like they're part of something bigger to meet and hear from the folks that'll come in and present on deal desk or, you know, rev ops or marketing resources. If, if they're not headquarters based, they may only interact with these people once a year at sales kickoff. And so this gives them a chance to put a face with the voice, make a personal connection. And these are the folks that will be critical to their success. And, and I've just found that if you have a chance to do that, when something does hit the fan down the road, because it always will, that it's easier to work through because you have that relationship. So those are my, you know, key objectives is knowledge transfer and then, and then uh, getting plugged into the ecosystem for success. We know that the minute they walk out of the room and fly home, they start dropping what they learned exponentially. And so the second part of that is what I call ramping, which is a multi-week experience that they're able to do, whether they're office-based, remote-based, doesn't matter that will take them through the additional thing. Number one, it's to review what they learned in the academy, but then to go deeper, reinforce, expand their knowledge, and start to specialize by role. Because again, you, you oftentimes have mixed groups of folks coming through the academy. In fact, in my opinion, that's ideal because they also start to form, you know, you always remember that cohort that you went through with, right? Those bonds run deep as long as oh, yeah. you guys are at the same, you know, working together. So- uh, the last thing I would add to that is that it starts before that person 
is hired. And what I mean is sales enablement ideally has a voice in the hiring, the hiring profiles and what those should look like and working with sales leadership, getting a, you know, a proper, you know, interview guides and rubrics and that sort of thing in place so that we're setting ourselves up for as much success coming in the door. Now that doesn't always happen, but it, to me, it's part of my framework and something I push for. So we'll, we'll switch gears a little bit here, Paul. So in the last few months, obviously there's been the pandemic. We don't need to focus on that, but as a result of it, a lot of businesses have been changing some of their go-to-market messaging, right? The mm-hmm. problems that they solve and, and the way they talk about it has changed. And in my experience, sales execution is a big part of sales enablement's responsibility, putting new messaging underneath that. And so I'm curious, like, what's your approach and maybe any advice you have to other sales leaders, sales enablement leaders who are, you know, maybe rolling out new messaging and just need a little bit of help of, you know, one, I think getting it to stick, making sure people are using it. Mm -hmm. And then two, making sure that it's even the right messaging, because obviously over time it needs a little bit of adjusting. That's where the triad of groups working together, I mentioned, becomes so critical. Sales enablement teams are not the experts in what's going on in the market, what competitors are doing. Now, we need to keep up to speed on it. We are the ones that are figuring out the best way to deliver that information. But that's why our product marketing teams as a partner are so critical. At my last company, we got to the point where the VP of product marketing and I saw our teams as virtual extensions of one another, and we were operating that way. I work currently with a great group of product marketers who I, when I got here, I was so pleased, to be honest, to find the depth of information available that we could start tapping into right away. And, and a, a couple of them are recognized in our industry as experts and are asked to speak regularly and that sort of thing. So that's where I would start is understanding, uh, you know, what the changes are in the market and working with them on the messaging. Now, as far as communicating it, Anything, I don't think it's just the messaging, anything that I want to communicate out to uh, a salesperson or sales team, first of all, I need to be able to talk to them about the why. In my experience, no matter what your profession is, people respond and adopt better if they understand why something is happening or why they're being asked to take this new message and that sort of thing. When we build modules, for example, for a new pitch, I don't, I don't want to have robots that memorize. Our modules teach the why behind that pitch, the why behind the slides and the key concepts. And then the capstone is for them to go create their own best version of that and upload it for review. And then, you know, of course, there's a rubric to make sure that they have hit the critical things. But in my view, how they get there, I don't really care because we want it to be a personalized pitch. So giving people the flexibility to make it their own, giving them the tools and giving them the why I think are all critical and, and then uh, test it, right? Like I say, whether it's have them do the pitch or some other way uh, you want to measure it. Now that doesn't ensure that they're going to, uh, you know, to use it. And, and that's where frontline leaders come in. Frontline leaders are so critical. We could do a whole podcast on that. The critical role of frontline sales managers um, in anything sales enablement. I have no illusions. These sales teams don't report to me. And it doesn't matter how great my team and I do, we've got to start with the leaders and help them help us take it out. So that's number one for adoption. Number two is you, you've got to, you got to inspect. You have to have some way to be, uh, you know, doing call coaching or call recording or analysis of some kind. 
Did that? Did I cover everything you asked? I think so, and, and even more, which is always okay. uh, which is always great. But no, it sounds like partnership across the org is is key, because everyone yeah. kind of has their own their own part in the pie, right? So it's like understanding the market for PM sales enablement, rolling it out, and then partnering with sales managers to make sure that it's actually happening in the field. So you know, being a little bit on the outside and, and not living and breathing sales enablement every day, um, you know, conceptually, I. You know, I'm curious around measure, the measurement of effective sales enablement. You know, some of the things that you're talking about around messaging and ensuring that it's effective, but yet enabling folks to personalize and customize that. How could you actually track how your organization is impacting the outcomes for the sales team? There's a lot there, isn't there? Okay. <laughs> yes. <laughs> let, me, let, me think, let me think. So let's start at the top. Sales enablement has to be somehow impacting revenue. No one has time for training for its own sake. One of the commitments I make publicly at every company where I've done sales enablement is, and I'll say this to sales teams, you just guys, we will never ask you to step away from selling unless your leaders and myself truly believe it's going to make you more dangerous and more money when you get back in the field. And if we ever fall short of that, please call me personally on it because, right, nobody has time for that. Now, how do we make sure that's happening? I use a concept that I learned from a, a, a very senior operations, one of the smartest guys I've ever known and worked for, uh, who mentored me some years ago in, in the concept of strategy mapping. And it's, you know, it's not a new concept. It's been around, came out of Harvard 20, 25 years ago. And it's typically used for large enterprises to map you know, here are our top line revenue goals and what are the incremental things that need to be happening so that we get there, right? Because that's a lagging indicator. And, and what my friend Mark, my boss at the time, helped me figure out how to do, and it was scale that down to an internal shared service unit like sales enablement. And so having that, I've got three revenue drivers that are at the top of that pyramid. And then everything that I think about that needs to go into our sales enablement program has to map up to that. Like literally, if I showed you the map, there's arrows. It's a little busy, but it's making sure that everything we're doing, we have reasonable expectation are going to hit one of those top line revenue target or one of those top line revenue goals. So that's that's how you start. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from that book, Strategy Focused Organization, is that the execution of a strategy is usually more important than the actual strategy itself. And, and so how do you, how do you drill down and, and, and again, start putting the leading indicators in place and, and ultimately get to what are the right KPIs that sales enablement is measuring? So I'm basically, I'm, I'm, I start from the top, start with the end in mind and, and, and come down. There's a concept that goes along with it called a balanced scorecard that you actually can, can you know, track the incremental things quarter by quarter to, to, to you know, uh, things that you were pretty sure are going to get to that outcome. And then below that scorecard are the sales enablement metrics that probably most of us are familiar with. For a new hire, it might be, I'm not a big fan of time to first sale. Too many, too many deals get walked into, but I do want to see time to a full funnel. I do want to see time to first sales generator opportunity. I want to see time to their second sale, all right? Unless they get two bluebirds, then it's the third sale. But you get what I'm saying? And those are, you know, typical ramping metrics that, that you see. I've used different software platforms to help us track that um, internally 
and be able to report to the sales leaders, both when progress is being made. And frankly, if we've got somebody that's stalling out, we want to be able to flag that for them early as well. I look at different KPIs in the, because really we've only talked about onboarding and ramping. Then you've got this whole professional development cycle that you that you need to have in place um, to continue to develop the sales team, keep them there, hopefully into their next job, maybe even the job after that in promotions and that sort of thing. But with that, I look at things like what are the percent, and I don't think this is news to anybody, but what, what is the percentage of our reps uh, achieving 100% or better attainment? So, so I want to see improvement in the percentage of quota um, uh, attainment. I want to see in the last two companies where I worked cross selling, we had a platform and our salespeople and, and this, you know, I mean, I'm we're working on this now. Our salespeople tend to lead with a piece of the product or features. And we actually want to get better at talking about the platform, uncovering what the needs are, then introducing the capabilities that can address those needs. It doesn't matter what we call them. If you look at some of my discovery playbooks, you'll never see the names of our products in them anywhere. It's all about problems to be solved and a use case that the customer can relate to and then agree that it could help them. Um, the, uh, and, and so the, so I would track that. I want to track, so percentage of opportunities that were cross-sell opportunities. And the other big one for me is improving average contract, increasing average contract value. Um, the so that's that's my top line stuff for developing new reps but then i can take that and look into their quarter to quarter year of year for example i did analysis um at the beginning of the year looking at what percentage of our sales team was our cohorts are under 80 80 to 100 over 100 and over and looking at what how many we had in each of those buckets and then trying to figure out what i reasonably thought where, where we could make movement in that looking at their quotas average quotas and that sort of thing and being able to come up with a dollar amount that I felt comfortable. I was pretty conservative that I was comfortable going to my CRO and saying, look, this is what I think we can accomplish, you know, in the first X months or over the year. So it's, 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 but you notice everything in there ties back to my boss's number. Yeah, hundred percent. There were there were some interesting nuggets in there that like I hadn't really thought about before, like time to full funnel, mm-hmm. um, time to the second sale, some of the nuances in there. Um, that that was really interesting. Have any of these metrics or focus on some of some specific metrics changed? Uh, you know, in the last few months while we've uh, you know with the COVID impact and all. Yes, but I think. I don't think I'm sure a lot of it has to do with the industry I'm in and probably even the industry that I came from. I I spent a long time in communications as a service and contact center, uh, you know, contact center as a service. And they're probably being impacted the same way. Our inbound SDRs were overwhelmed within the first few weeks um, uh, by the first week of April, probably. And, And so our outbound SDRs all just started taking inbound calls. So that has created a challenge if you're trying to track metrics on a baseline. To be honest, the baselining that I did with um, uh, uh, shout out to to Jacob and RevOps because you know his numbers made this possible. It blew up. Right now, how quickly somebody would ramp in our current sales environment, and frankly, that whole thing of shifting, you know, my my point forecast on shifting people from under eighty percent, et cetera. Et cetera right now it's just um i it's all blown up right so so the 
The, we know that's not going to last. We know that we're going to have to get back to uh, having more of a bell curve in the sales reps that are achieving and, and uh, overachieving. But right now, they're, they're all doing really well. Um, and so that's probably the biggest change for me. Uh, us here personally dealing with this is, is like I say, our, our, the numbers are kind of silly right now in a really good way, but silly. And the other piece is how do we take these things online? There are some things, and I know every sales enabling leader has got to be dealing with this. There are some things that I just, I still believe are best done face-to-face. Like I talked about the sales academy, for example. Um, And yet we had to find a way to take that online. Very short notice, actually. If I remember, we had an April, a March or April cohort that was due to come that instantly their travel plans were, were, were changed and we had to pivot fast. We're still figuring it out. The team has done a great job. I'm proud of what what uh, what they've put in place, but we're honestly still figuring it out. In fact, several guests since February on the podcast have been to talk about how they're finding ways to do this in, in new and different and you know, impactful ways. You have covered a lot, Paul, and you have shared uh, a lot of good insights. As we wrap up our interview, I'd love to hear for the you know sales and enablement professionals listening they might be trying to find like that one or two thing they should really focus on. So do you have any advice like in terms of priorities, like what these professionals should focus on for the rest of 2020? Going back to what we talked about a few minutes ago, Devin, um, if they are not currently um, aligned, their strategy rather is not aligned to revenue impact, that needs, that would be priority one is figure out how to do that. Um, I, I am happy to, you know, I, I'm on LinkedIn and I, I mean, I'm happy if I can give back and, and help anybody figure out what I had help figuring out, you know, years ago, but one way or another, you got to get there. Your executive sponsors and your sales leaders will look at you and your program in a completely different light. And in the current economy, you're, uh, you, you just, it's even more critical to be able to show that correlation to revenue. That would be number one. If you're already doing that and, and feel pretty good about that, then I would say it goes back to figuring out how to create the best possible hybrid learning model for ramping new employee development, or excuse me, existing employee development and that sort of thing. Like I say, we haven't figured it out all the way. I learn new stuff all the time, but we've got to, I, we don't know what the new normal is going to be. I don't think it'll be what we're in right now forever, but I don't also don't know that we're all going to be jumping on planes and flying around the way that we used to. And, and so I'd say that's the other one that we all need to be working on. So Paul, we love to ask all of our guests uh, the same question because we get to hear a wide variety of responses here. How would you describe sales in one word? Is problem solver one word? Probably not. We'll throw a hyphen in there and make it count. Throw a hyphen in there. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. that, because that, that, that would be my honest answer. Um, Sales is not the art of persuading and convincing and overcoming objectives. And I'm not saying you're not doing those things indirectly, but to be consistently successful, that's what you're doing is you're understanding the problems and helping your prospect create a vision of how some capability your product offers will help them overcome those problems. I love it. it. (laughs) 
Well, Paul, it was so wonderful having you on the show today. You have so much knowledge on this space. Um, appreciate you dropping a lot of insights here for our audience. All right. Thanks. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Paul. If you've listened this far, I'm willing to bet that improving your sales enablement function is top of mind. Good on you. Your team will thank you. If you're building this team from scratch or looking to elevate your existing team, you're going to want to have clear goals and ways to measure their impact. So here are three ways you can measure your sales enablement's impact, aside from the few that Paul shared earlier today. First is talk time. This metric looks at how much time reps spend in meetings with buyers on a weekly basis. This often gets put on the shoulders of reps, but if you peel back the layers, this is something that sales enablement can have a strong influence on. Ensure you're setting your team up with effective discovery questions and conversation starters for every step in the sales process in order to get the prospect talking. Next is talk track adoption. This can vary from new sales methodology usage, new product pitches, competitive differentiation, and more. Successful rollouts include training the sales team, monitoring adoption, and continued iteration based on market feedback. And sales enablement is critical for all three. Make sure your team is equipped with a tech stack that gives them both visibility into sales conversations and the ability to share best practices. Revenue intelligence platforms like Gong are perfect for this. Next and final is content usage. Part of sales enablement is ensuring reps have the collateral that aligns with buyer expectations and needs as they progress through the sales process. And while more content is often the ask, I mean, salespeople do love to know when the next case study is coming out, a better metric is to understand how often these content pieces are being used, when, and how it's correlated to deal success. This will justify the cost of creating it and also guide you in terms of what to create in the future. Did you like today's episode? Subscribe now so next week's episode will be waiting for you on Monday. And if you really like the podcast, please leave a review. Five-star reviews go a long way to help get the word out there. And if you're not ready to give a five, check out another episode and see if we've won you over by then. And if you have any feedback or you want us to interview one of your favorite revenue leaders, just email us at reveal at gong.io.